Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is proudly brought to you by the Healthy Building Network. HBN has a vision. All people and the planet thrive when the environment is free of hazardous chemicals. Their mission is to advance human and environmental health by improving hazardous chemical transparency and inspiring product innovation. They pursue their mission on three fronts. One, research and policy, uncovering cutting edge information about healthier products and health impacts. Two, data systems, producing software platforms that aggregate and catalog product transparency and chemical hazards. And three, education and capacity building, fostering others' capabilities to make informed decisions. When we know better, we do better. To learn more about Healthy Building Network and access their suite of resources, visit www.healthybuilding.net. That's www.healthybuilding.net. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here today with my trusty sidekick, Miguel. Hello, listeners. And I'm also here today with Gina Saganik, the CEO of the Healthy Building Network, and Billy Weber, the Collective Impact Director of the Healthy Building Network. So that was the skinny introduction. Gina, please say hello and tell us a little more about your role as CEO of HBN. Hi, as you mentioned, I'm Gina Saganik. I've been the CEO of Healthy Building Network, or sometimes we're called HBN, uh, for about uh, three years. I've um, come from the affordable housing field. So my early part of my career for the first two decades was as a VP of housing development in the Twin Cities area, building affordable housing. And I was very interested in healthier, high-efficiency buildings. I noticed it was really difficult to find healthier materials for the projects I was responsible to create, and I joined the Healthy Building Network to create a to create a program called Home Free that started to translate and make accessible more information about what uh, what the ingredients of products were, what the uh, chemicals of concerns were, and how to go about asking for and sourcing healthier materials. Awesome. So our goal at Healthy Building Network is to make sure that all people and the planet thrive when the environment is free of hazardous chemicals. That's so awesome. And what year was that, that Home Free, you started with Home Free? Home Free really kicked off in 2016. And we worked in six states across the U.S. to build communities of practice in each of those areas. So Minnesota, New York, and uh, Seattle, P- Pacific Northwest area, California, Louisiana, and the D.C. metro area. Wow. That's awesome. And I really appreciate, I want to highlight the theme before we get to you, Billy. We will do it. The theme of, um, you know, we, when we think about high-performance buildings or fantastic buildings, multiple dimensions of beauty, whatever you call it, one of the ones that's often been overlooked, you know, you hear the classics like durability and energy efficiency and comfort, and now, fortunately, we're adding health, but this social justice aspect of healthy buildings, right? It's it's something that we don't really talk about. And when we build low-income housing or low-wealth communities, the low-first cost really is hard to get past. Well, some of that, some of it's a myth that uh, healthier materials or healthier buildings or energy efficiency is not affordable. It's not just for the privilege. Healthier buildings, lower costs, healthier products, all of those things should be equitable. And if we start from a place of equity and we think about affordability, if we think about money being a scarce resource, as in some of the natural resources, we will begin to be more creative about our solutions and we will include everybody. So the more we decide to throw money at solutions, we inhibit creativity and we erode equity. 
And so if we find solutions that are affordable to everybody, especially those at the lowest incomes and those that are often disproportionately impacted by health or other issues, we'll bring these uh, solutions to scale like we often aren't able to right now. Well said. I want to uh, like applaud and uh, I could hear the passion too. So, so Billy, let's introduce yourself. And you're the Collective Impact Director. Did, did you choose that title? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gina gave me that title. Uh, so, uh, my name is Billy Weber and I am the collective impact director for HBN and, um, I'm a bit of a materials outsider. I joined HBN in, uh, the spring of this year, um, coming on to, uh, manage home free and run our, uh, affordable housing initiative. Um, in addition, I'm building our education across our platforms my background uh, is in university research. For almost two decades, I was at the Center for Sustainable Building Research, which is part of the College of Design at the University of Minnesota. And my area of study was sustainable, affordable housing. That's how I first met Gina um, back when she was a developer. And I was working with developer owner teams and improving their development process and uh, greening the housing that they were developing. Um, and I also taught at the university as an adjunct uh, professor in the School of Architecture. Um, My background is in architecture, so I have a master's of architecture, but um, I failed to launch, so I never actually practiced. I stayed at the university and uh, creating change in affordable housing. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's really great about this work, and this is something that I think Gene and I both learned um, kind of in in the course of things, is really the the opportunity that this work is to uh, raise all boats. So it might have been great to design a couple of really great buildings, but um, I really think that there's an opportunity here to help a, a lot of people do maybe a little better, maybe a lot better, um, but improving things, you know, kind of across the board. So that's always kind of been my mode. Mm-hmm. And in sustainability, um, over the last, I would say, you know, decade, people have really focused on energy and energy efficiency. And uh, that's something that I think is really successfully um, solved at the building scale. And as Gina said, uh, the materials piece is really something that needs a holistic systemic approach. And that's really what was part of the uh, inspiration. There was that kind of challenge that drew me to jump ship from the university and and join HBN. Mm, love it. Okay, so yeah, so living with a sense of meaning is actually um, a very important aspect of our career. One quick comment, I was just at the Passive House Conference in Boston, and the closing keynote was a group of um, students from Prairie View A&M in Houston, or just outside of Houston, and it was a group of children that grew up in low-wealth communities, and one of them said to a group of architects, basically, you know, I never considered being an architect. I thought architects just worked on, uh, you know, kind of beautiful baubles for the rich. And I never thought that through architecture, we could address some of the challenges I faced growing up. And she got a big applause, I mean, from saying that. because So there is this aspect of everyone recognizes the potency of the architecture profession as an agent of societal change. And so... It's great that you're doing that. So, Gina, I want to go back to your comment on how just throwing money at a problem actually, if I remember correctly, you said it inhibits creativity and it decreases equity. Could you explore that a little bit or elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sometimes I like to describe what I call the Gilligan's Island concept for those (laughs) who remember the shipwreck and the folks who were on the island. (laughs) (laughs) You know, They didn't have a lot of supplies, and I always think of the professor who could create all of these amazing things out of coconuts, and he probably wouldn't have created, you know, the radios and the various things he did if he he, uh, had other kinds of supplies. Mm -hmm. So the way I I approached our work with Billy and the other folks who... Uh, worked on the affordable housing developments with me. So we would always look at the resources we had, whether they were design approaches or or sometimes, frankly, materials approaches, and tried to find simple, elegant solutions that were replicable mm-hmm. and affordable. And so if you can 
if you can accomplish replicability and affordability, you don't have to have wishful thinking that this trickle-down approach that never works really um, is going to be the savior. So we never counted on um, some expensive solution. I'm not saying we haven't added some resources and some money somewhere to solve a problem. We always looked at the return on investment. We always looked at other factors if somehow that would help innovation to spark an investment somewhere and then the 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 move from that would help spark innovation. But it is really important that we start from a place of equity, simplicity, and replicability or we're never going to solve any of these problems. One of the places I would imagine you have put a lot of innovation is systems, like communication systems and how you reach, do outreach through your communities. Is that right? I mean, where's the innovation occurring? It's, it's not technical innovation, right? It's often, yeah, technology isn't always the solution, even though Healthy Building Network has amazing software engineers and we have some very important data systems that aggregate and interpret information. We, even though Healthy Building Network has great technology, great software platforms for some of our chemical databases, uh, we we often find sitting down co-creating solutions with those who are most affected of, uh, by the, the problem creates a much better holistic solution to whatever it is we're solving. And, right. and I could just build on that maybe a little bit. And one of the ways in which we've really worked is uh, through communities of practice in our initially in these six geographic areas with home free specifically. And that really allowed us to, learn and understand um, from the folks on the ground what their particular issues and, and challenges um, that they are facing in including healthier materials. And I think that that's one of those key ways in which we do our work, the co-creation of solution. We're not coming in and saying, this is how this needs to be solved. We're coming in as experts and material experts um, and co-solving with people as opposed to dictating a solution. We really understand particularly Gina with her background um, in affordable housing, really the the kind of practical challenges on the ground. And, and so we're trying to meet those challenges in a realistic way and really push for lasting change as opposed to kind of a point in time change that doesn't take hold in a meaningful way that extends into the future. Mm-hmm. We also understand how, how influential voices and, and, important organizations like Google, who is a partner of ours, or or Harvard or Georgia Tech. We work with many folks who have an influential voice. And when they start picking healthier materials or, or demanding transparency, the manufacturers listen, the systems listen. What we're trying to also do with affordable housing and our social justice work is make sure those voices are aggregated and heard just as loudly as those passionate partners at Google and many of the big institutions who are trying to solve the toxicity and materials and move towards healthier Mm -hmm. environments. So we are able to work at all of those levels and take that information to the manufacturers, to the Home Depots, to other partners who can help to think of green, come up with green chemistry solutions for their products. Billy, what's your role in that in getting the, getting the word out? Yep. So my role is, and what I was brought on to do is to create a self-guided education platform, as well as to work Hmm. with the communities of practice that we have going, existing, as well as some, some new ways of reaching folks. So we're partnering with some existing housing networks, um, HPN, Housing Partnership Network and SAFE, mm-hmm. um, as well as Enterprise, to get the word out through their membership and through the folks who are tied into those those programs. And that really allows us to, you know, yes, continue on the ground, um, but also reach uh, a larger audience and get bigger buy-in because it really is about building a market for materials as much as it is anything else, showing the material suppliers, developers, manufacturers, that folks are interested in this, that they are going to demand alternatives to some of the most toxic 
chemicals that are being used in our environment. So, mm-hmm. you know, part of that strategy is to, you know, work collectively um, to, to make that change. And the education mm-hmm. platform that we're developing is really going to allow people to come and, you know, their own, their own speed, their own time, and kind of quickly move through uh, awareness building to a, a clearer understanding about, you know, why they should care um, from an owner developer perspective of housing, but also, you know, what impact this has on their residents. And then also kind of the larger impacts for um, the environment, both human um, and ecological environments. So I think it's, yeah. it's really trying to kind of amass um, and educate. Although I'm, I'm as coming some, from somebody in an educator background, I really think it's more about helping people learn and raising awareness um, that's going to lead to that change because I think toxics in materials is still something that is a little ephemeral for most people and, and isn't really well understood. That's a mm-hmm, good point. Absolutely. There's a fear that it's too complicated because clearly there's a lot of chemistry we talk about sometimes, but I am not a chemist. Oh, you dropped off. Clearly there's a lot of stuff. Or like chemists a, and chemical engineers, but I am certainly not one. So yeah. I often think of myself as the chief gone. translator. Can you guys hear so us? So you don't have to feel like you have to you be a chemist. You also don't have to worry don't about um, really, everything being too expensive or not performing. We are giving solutions that are affordable and will perform uh, to the standards that people are expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, we had a little bit of drop-off there. But, yeah, so you were saying that um, – oh, I forgot what you were saying. So <laughs> one of the important – uh, one of the important things mm-hmm. we help people understand is they do not have to be a chemist and they don't have to be uh-huh. uh, and, and they don't have to worry about all you know solutions being too expensive. We yeah. have chemists, we have toxicologists, we have chemical engineers on our staff who do the research. My role is often the chief translator, I call myself often, to make <laughs> sure that anybody can approach this and understand that you don't have to be a chemist. We provide solutions that are affordable and that perform according to what your budget is. Love it. Yeah. And I really love that you're, you're upbeat, you're um, optimistic about human nature in the sense that you're saying, look, we understand that people are making decisions. Our assumption is that if they knew more about the, the impacts of their decisions, they might make them differently. Get, you're getting the information out there. So you, you're kind of relying on human caring. People care about what they do and what they decide. Correct. So, our tagline is know better. And we often say, if you know better, you can do better. And that's our goal, really, is to s- simply put it. Yeah. And I, I love I love you also have a vision on your website that's uh, putting it succinctly, thriving humans, thriving planet, or maybe thriving planet, thriving humans. It's You have that goal. And 10 years ago, Positive Energy started. One of the first things we did, we printed some T-shirts and hats, and we wrote healthy buildings, you know, healthy planet, healthy people. Excuse me. We didn't say healthy buildings. We said healthy planet, healthy people. And at the time, it seemed like just so far out there, that idea, you know, that we'd actually do it. And here we are. I mean, progress is getting made. We need a lot more progress. Um, do you guys just... just Personally, do you guys ever uh, work with disheartenment or you know, sort of doubt? Or how do you handle that? Well, that's the nature of our business. People often tell me now, I, I, Gina, I walked into a building and I smelt all this poisonous fumes and I thought of you, which I don't know if that's a compliment or, or what that means. But it tells me that whatever we talked about, it's stuck in their minds and then we now think about the new car smell or the new building smell instead of thinking about what a success and how great that is, how exciting it's new that we say, wait a minute, what am I breathing in and how is that affecting me? How is that affecting my child? You know, there's reports now from environmental working group and others that children are, you know, babies are born with almost 300 industrial chemicals already in their bodies. There's so much science and evidence about how these chemicals are building up in our bodies that are, are carcinogens, they're mutating, you know, cell mutating, they are, you know, uh, long lasting and uh, create developmental issues. And until we start really thinking about the chemical overlay as a core part of whether it's an energy initiative we're doing 
or other kinds of health initiatives around ener- food and and exercise, those kinds of things, if we're not really thinking about the chemicals in all of our products, building products in particular because of the scale and the volume, but what is your food wrapped in or what, you know, what is your car uh, smelling like and what are you touching and what is entering your body because of that and how will that affect you for the long term? We have to think Mm -hmm. about this and we have to think about it now and really start working on solutions. Yeah. Yeah. You're reminding me of, um, or it's popping into my head. Maybe it's thinking about TV because you mentioned Gilligan's Island, but do you remember those TV commercials? It was like, um, relax, you're soaking in it. It's okay. It's palm olive. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's sort of like the indoor environment, you know, we're all soaking in it (laughs) all the time. We immerse ourselves in it and then we wonder if it's a big deal. So could one of you maybe, so I appreciate where you went, you know, 300 chemicals in babies and there's all kinds of impacts, carcinogens, cell mutating, developmental issues. Could we make that a little more crunchy, a little more like, can you take it to the next step? What would, how would that show up? Like a, a parent is noticing their child having a certain behavior and that could correlate with chemical exposure? It, all kinds of things. I think most people are familiar with the idea of lead, whether it's lead-based paint or water and IQ, loss of IQ points, permanent loss of IQ points. So it could come from learning disabilities. It might come, there's more and more connections around autism and, and many of those issues. And then, you know, cancer, we know formaldehyde, we know other kinds of chemicals are considered carcinogens. And the more you're exposed Mm -hmm. to them, the more issues you have. We know from many of our researchers uh, across the country at, you know, UCSF uh, that reproductive issues, you know, fertility, both in men and women are issues. I think we're going to be I mean, we already know a lot of this evidence, but as people get more and more familiar with the science behind it and start looking at disease and healthcare costs, it's all tied together. And until we really understand how our chemical footprint is affecting our bodies, our futures, our wildlife, our rivers, and how our food systems, there's a that's why they say the polar bears have it, fire, you know, flame retardants in their bodies way up at the North Pole. It's because of this; it blows around and it lands different places, and it's a it's an important issue that we have to tie within all the other work we're doing. Climate change can't be thought about without understanding how chemicals of how chemicals impact that, how it impacts the ozone and global warming. You know, from health to climate, it, it's such an important issue. We, we get that a lot of these chemicals, of course, have saved lives, have these products are amazing. We can do a both and. We need these products to keep our buildings you know, waterproof, to keep people healthy, but we can both and. We can find greener, healthier solutions, many coming from nature, the biomimicry movements, um, have to be thought about and how nature solves many of its problems. We have real Mm -hmm. solutions there, simpler solutions. So I keep thinking about the necessity of the precautionary principle in this conversation. You know, there's a lot of things that we know about hazards and there's a lot that we don't, but it seems that, you know, the information is developing at a rapid pace and we're learning every day about impacts and we don't really have time to hesitate about it. And we should be cautious about what we're putting in our environment. I was seeing today in the BBC online, they were talking about the lasting impacts of uh, PCBs on orcas, which are essentially decimating the killer whale populations. And I was thinking about that and in, in thinking about our conversation we were going to have today and, and just like what a long lasting impact some of these things have. They're bioaccumulative um, chemicals that we're putting into the biosphere. And, you know, we banned PCBs decades ago, and they're still having a lasting impact. And I'm, yeah. I want to avoid the, you know, the next PCB if we can, and the next lead and the next mercury crisis. And I think that that seems to be a guiding principle for me. It's, it's we know enough um, that we should be looking for alternatives. And, and I think that's a really critical path. Here, here. And it's interesting, as you say that, it gets me back into the, to the human side of things. I mean, like, the human caring and how you can get disheartened because frankly 
it's an urgent situation, right? You know, as you say, that it takes mom- there's momentum to these chemicals in the environment that takes decades for the flywheel to slow down, the flywheel of impact. And yet, you know, our firm, your firm, we need to engage in the industry where it is today in order to have that connection for, with which to influence its change. And it's challenging for me to engage, right? It's like, you want to just go, ay, 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 are you nuts? <laughs> yeah, I think you... I think you have to engage from a point of optimism. I really think that, you know, coming to people and, you know, with the dire story of how we're all doomed is just not a compelling narrative for people. You know, (laughs) there's enough going on in the world right now that is disheartening. But, you know, we're not challenging people to solve problems they can't solve. We're challenging people to help us solve problems we can solve. And Mm -hmm. so when you talk about, you know, the Monday morning when you open the paper and it's grim and you know there's really disheartening news about things going on you know in the in the work that we're doing and you know even sustainability 20 years ago felt like such a climb and we've made really big progress we have a lot more progress to make but there's progress out there and you you really need to keep filling your glass i i admit some days i'm i'm just shaking my head a lot but you know most of the time i'm meeting amazing people you know, I look to my right, I look to my left. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people who are interested in this. Yeah. I think Billy nailed it about coming at it towards this with optimism and finding actionable solutions. And that's how HBN is tackling this. One of the things I learned in the very beginning is who, I was wondering who regulates this, who is paying attention to this and doesn't the EPA have more rules and regulations around this. And I was stunned to find that the EPA with their Toxic Substance Control Act, uh, TOSCA often called, there's over 85,000 chemicals on that. When that was created, that that rule in the 70s, there were 65,000 of those chemicals just grandfathered in without any kind of testing. And so today of the 85 some thousand on there, less than 200 have really been tested uh, to figure out the impacts of hu- on human health. And somewhere between five and nine, how you d- debated that's again, five to nine chemicals have uh-huh. some sort of restriction on them. So when you think of 85,000 and only having some regulations or restrictions on five to nine of them, it is the magnitude of that feels overwhelming. When I hear chemists tell me, oh, you know, and I heard John Warner say, you know, touching the receipts at a grocery store, you know, and the effects that has on endocrine interruption and other things, it it could feel crippling. How do I touch anything? How can I work on this if the government isn't even looking at this? What we know is there are solutions. We're seeing people make better solutions. We see now manufacturers coming to the table. You see, you see companies like Target put forth publicly their chemical management, um, their program that they announced publicly this year. It, it is becoming more and more approachable and more and more palatable to talk about it, where a handful of years ago, nobody wanted to talk about it. It was mm-hmm. a scary thing. You know, the chemical companies are pushing and pushing for more and more chemicals to be the solution and to put flame retardants in mattresses and babies' pajamas and things where yeah. we know better. We have fire marshals on the side of taking flame retardants out of, you know, insulations because they really aren't effective. And what they're seeing is that their, their firefighters' incidents of cancer and the rates of disease that firefighters have because of their exposures of these chemicals, which are often proven not to be even effective, mm. are so problematic to their employees and their loved ones. When you look at 9-11 and the reports coming out of all the exposures that all of those emergency responders have and are dying from now because of our decisions about chemistries, we can do better. We know we can do better. Yeah, there's crippling levels of, of pain in our society rippling through from from this kind of fiction of better living through chemistry. And actually, it's not a complete fiction, which is the challenge, because there, obviously there's tremendous breakthroughs and benefits to society. Absolutely. Mastery of technology. But 
Yeah, so, so it's funny, you started saying how important it is to be optimistic, and then you, know, you just state the facts. It's uh, challenging. <laughs> but it is working, right? Let's go back to optimism. So transparency, when you approach a company today and ask for what's in their product, um, could you comment on how it might be different today versus even just two years ago? One of the big questions about uh, transparency is how do we disclose? How do we as a, uh, as industry disclose the information? And one of the issues, one of the challenges that even beyond two to four years ago, transparency was difficult. And even t- today, even though there isn't a lot of transparency, one of the challenges, even on the early days when some of the manufacturers were starting to disclose, everybody was using different formats. And so in order to really understand what is in products and be able to compare them to others, there needed to be a single industry-wide adopted format. So creating the Health Product Declaration Collaborative is a group of industry uh, representation from manufacturers and architects and building owners and others who came up with a standard. It was something that HBN had started and spun out and it took off. So more and more manufacturers are using and adopted the health product declaration, HPD. There's a public repository where people can go look at that. When I was an affordable housing developer, that didn't exist. So you couldn't even find that information. So there's about 4,000 products from manufacturers, manufacturers who are trying to solve this, manufacturers who are also trying to get information from their supply chains who aren't always transparent. So the manufacturers are engaging now and you're falling behind if you're if your manufacturing company doesn't have health product declarations on the products that you are selling. So the HPDs, are they just for the layman, right? Is that something like a... Um FDA food label? Is that sort of the... Much more complicated. That's what (laughs) HBN is able to take a health product declaration and simplify it, interpret it. Some of them are 50 pages long with all kinds of chemicals and residuals and all kinds of things that people have a hard time if you're not a chemist looking at. So those have to exist for organizations like ours or the Cradle to Cradle Institute who does certifications or the International Living Future Institute, who does the declare label. We have to start with disclosure, quality disclosure, and then groups like Healthy Building Network can interpret that and give people information from that. Are you guys related to Mindful Materials? Is that somehow connected to what you're doing? They're friends, yes. They're able to take... They're organizing a sort of a one-stop shop, Mindful Materials, so you don't have to go separately to a website from at the Cradle to Cradle Institute and find their certification or an HPD or many of the other certifications or information that manufacturers put up out. So they're sort of a one-stop shop hub where you can find a lot of this information in one place rather than going to four or five different websites. HBN, you were one of the early leaders in this field. Is that right? I mean, how would you describe the sort of the network of organizations and, and the dynamism there and working together on HPDs, for example? The ecosystem is growing is what I would say. So I've been with mm-hmm. HBN for three years, but the founder, Bill Walsh, back in, the, mm-hmm. back in 2000, was one of the lone soldiers and Tom Lent uh, within our organization. There wasn't many people wanting to talk to us. We were trying to push uh, our, our building owners and partners to request product information. Transparency was unheard of. Manufacturers were saying it's intellectual property. We're not telling you. So back in the day, it was a very lonely place. So we were doing a lot of research, pushing a lot of information out there with not a lot of friends coming on board. We were just talking the other day about what a success. People say, oh, don't you feel like these groups are competing with you? There's Mindful Materials. There's Cradle to Cradle. There's all these other institutions that have popped forth. And we say, hell no, that is a success. We've been waiting for more and more (laughs) friends. We need an army of folks involved in this. Now we know it gets a little hard because which, which standard do I look at, which certification. And so we're, that's a good problem to have is more and more people involved. So now we have to do a little harmonization 
rather than having a big gap in information. So we do have our challenges in harmonization, but that is a that is clearly a success. Okay, I hope this isn't crass to go to this level, but not just harmonization, but isn't it that you guys are somewhat competing for the same financial resources from philanthropic donors or government? How do you fund HBN? How does that, how does that happen? That's a good question. For, uh, Healthy Building Network is funded about 80% through philanthropy and about 20% through people who hire us to do research, who hire oh. us to provide advice or speak and those who want to license our data or are subscribed to our software platform. So we're a a mix Mm -hmm. um, and continue to grow in that way. Philanthropy can't be the only ones, you know, they were really the spark. They were really filling the gap when the market wasn't supporting this work and they weren't looking for research. But now we have great partners like the architectural firms Perkins and Will, who Mm -hmm. we worked with on the antimicrobial report. We just had a subscription research project with some manufacturers trying to figure out the global supply chain of chlorine and vinyl and all the pollution contributed to that. So yes, we are actually growing at Healthy Building Network because of the demand, which years ago, the demand wasn't there. So the the philanthropic community really helped spark this movement. So maybe let's just talk about those two, the antimicrobials and the chlorine, uh, the vinyl issues. Let's start with antimicrobials. Uh, How did that report start and what, what are the basics of what you learned? One of the reasons it started as a partner, uh, Kaiser Permanente, was really seeing how antimicrobials were creating superbugs and were a problem within their hospital system. And so they had been, you know, besides all the research that was happening, Kaiser Permanente was one of the first who started to ban antimicrobials in their hospital at the same time that chemical companies were trying to slather it on every building product and pump it on everything saying, you know, playing upon the fears of the moms that the kids are going to be sick. You have to remember, this is what my, uh, my chemists and my uh, staff taught me that antimicrobials are a pesticide. They're a pesticide. You have to absorb that. It's a pesticide. So why would you slather pesticides on your kitchen table, you know, within soaps, and toothpaste and a lot of places they were appearing they wear off they're known to be problematic in a number of ways but plain if you look at how chemical how much the the volume of antimicrobials that chemical companies have sold in the last decade because they're slathering it on and putting it in places and marketing it as at a health claim and it's not now granted there are some cases where it needs to be used as a preservative so in the right amounts within paints that are water-based and they need a preservative or they'll get moldy or you'd have to keep Mm -hmm. them in the fridge or something, (laughs) uh, which isn't good from an energy standpoint. But this idea that they're necessary for health is exactly the opposite. And so we're being snowed and we're paying more for antimicrobials marketed as a health claim. They're not. I think that you know, when we're talking about some of the challenges and particularly in green building related to specific content issues like antimicrobials, another thing that um, we've learned and have done research on is on the kind of challenges of recycled content. Um, so HBN has done research looking at uh, the chain of uh, materials through recycling. And really, you know, a great example of this is the use of fly ash, which it's really a waste material rather than a recycled content. Um, but uh, fly ash, for example, is used as a filler in carpets on uh, the backing of carpets and can be up to 40% of the weight of a carpet tile wow. um, in some instances. And this is essentially reintroducing into our supply chain um, chemicals that we are scrubbing out of uh, coal-fired plants um, to, you know, reintroduce uh, heavy metals, mercury, back into our systems. So we're essentially capturing (laughs) and um, then, you know, reintroducing, um, you know, through this process. So I think, you know, when when 
we talk to people and they're like, oh, what do I do about recycling now? It's like, well, you need to be smart about recycling and, and you know, the industry needs to be responsible about their use of, of materials and recycling. And the real critical thing here is that, you know, many of the closed loop cycles that we're attempting to establish that we want to establish in uh, the materials markets um, can't really succeed if we are constantly putting uh, pollutants into materials. Another great example of that is in recycled um, vinyl content, for example, where they're stripping vinyl off of wiring from you know computer systems and they're pulling those metals back into the vinyl supply chain. Um, you know, so it's really being thoughtful and building awareness, and and this kind of goes back to the idea of uh, you know being smart, learning. Um, not necessarily judging from the past, but learning and taking the information you are learning and moving forward with it um, and not being paralyzed by it because, you know, much of the recycling that we do is really good and really positive, but we just need to be smart about it. Um, and we, you know, need to create actions that, that help us to succeed in the long run, not just in the, the short run. Well said. Yeah, I've heard that um, much of what we call recycling is actually more accurately described as downcycling, that the molecules are degraded. Do you know much about that? Well, I think, you know, going kind of back to the cradle to cradle idea about, mm -hmm. you know, technological nutrients and, and how we think about that. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a concern that we are essentially taking a high grade material, a high energy, in, you know, embodied energy material and dumbing it down, you know, in a cycle that essentially will end up, um, you know, as trash anyways, mm -hmm. yeah. or as, you know, I, I always used to say to my students, you, know, you have to understand the difference between trash, garbage and waste and waste is a good thing. It's a natural thing. We all produce and get cycled through up and down a chain, but you know, garbage is dead end and we're the only organisms on the planet who make garbage. Um, that just is going to sit with us for a really long time. Um, so I think, you know, from the material side, we need to be smarter about it. And, you know, going back to the recycling, uh, you know, it can have an impact and it can have an impact on human health and indoor environmental quality. Yeah, reintroducing, like Billy was saying, potentially what we found is lead in vinyl floors. And if a vinyl floor wasn't a great, you know, starting point from a toxicity and a, you know, life cycle standpoint, but then using the vinyl from wires from electronics and inserting that in a floor where there wasn't, shouldn't ever have been a concern about lead. Now you're putting that where kids are crawling. You know, there's, uh, you know, we're, we're getting closer. Manufacturers are eliminating phthalates, a chemical that has a known endocrine inter interrupter and has been banned from use in kids' toys. It's a plasticizer that makes plastics more malleable. So it can't be within a kid's toy, but the kid could sit on a floor in your kitchen with, you know, <laughs> pounds and pounds of phthalates. Yeah. And so yeah. some of the manufacturers have eliminated it from the floor, but then they're using old vinyl, recycling it, and putting it in, into the new vinyl, the virgin vinyl, and recreating that problem. So we love the idea of recycled content and a circular economy, and we have to get there. But if we don't understand this use of toxics and then the reuse uh, and regulate that, we'll never get there. So let's just touch on that word toxics for a minute. Toxics is almost like a little bit of a sterilized wrapper to describe something that's basically poisonous for human exposure. Is, is that right? Or is that too simplistic? When we say I like that idea. Toxic, I think that's a fair way to put it. <laughs> I mean, what does it mean? When well, and I think there's a, well, I was just going to say, I think there's, you know, there's a difference between going back to our nature versus man-made, the toxic versus toxins you know, toxics are man-made, toxins are, you know, snake venom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it, again, it goes back to, you know, uh, a subtlety in the language that, you know, we, we are constantly trying to refine. Mm -hmm. 
toxic. Yeah, that's a good good word, um, subtlety. And you know, when you were talking about the difference between waste, garbage, and trash, all of them sort of have this word away, right? I'm going to throw this away. Well, where's away, right? This is a finite planet, and you know, ultimately, like these microplastics that go everywhere in our world, they're they're sort of the the away for a lot of the recycle, a lot of the materials that we create, they, they don't go away. They just go um, sort of in, they go, they go invisible. Yeah, exactly. They go tiny. Yeah. I should say, I'm going to go throw this and make it tinier so that therefore I can um, make it more bioavailable for uptake and accumulation. Okay. So <sighs> that, that was fascinating. Was that the, Jeannie, uh, when you were talking about how we don't allow phthalates in children's toys, but it's in the vinyl floor and now the vinyl floor has both phthalates and lead. Um, was that the study you did that you were referring to, this research on chlorine and vinyl? Or that, is there more results from that? There's a, that we have different recycled uh, reports that look at the recycled content that we did with Alameda County out in California. So there's some really interesting work that folks can look at. One of our carpet reports talks a lot about that. So there's those reports are online. HBN has a lot of great free resources between our reports and between Home Free, some of our data systems like the Data Commons. So please look there for all kinds of work. But our latest report, which you'll find on there, is called Chlorine and Building Materials. And it was really looking at uh, globally the supply chain for plastics, uh, PVC in particular. And the, the angle we took was really understanding the technologies that create vinyl floor. So it's not even the, the floor in particular once it's produced, but it's the process that goes into it. And one of the things that we found is globally, many of the, the uh, plants that produce the vinyl floor, the products that go into vinyl flooring, use asbestos and mercury within their technologies mm. to produce uh, the PVC and the VCM and the other, uh, the other commodities that are used in the process. So it's shocking to think about as much as we often talk about the flooring itself, the phthalates within it. If you step back and look globally, who knew that asbestos and mercury are being used in this country in the processing of this vinyl because many of the plants haven't updated their technology. So if the manufacturers start to deselect the supply chains that still use mercury and asbestos in their their factories as part of their technologies that is one way we can start to clean up the the major global pollution that's happening we shouldn't be using asbestos and mercury anymore and especially in the production of a you know questionable product i i get that you know vinyl has become plastics are ubiquitous and They've certainly, you know, I've specced PVC pipes and vinyl floor and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. This is a moment where when we know better, we can do better. Here, here. So what about building science? Are you guys uh, trying to integrate your, I guess, your research into the building science realm or integrate the building science realm into your research? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of the, the latter uh, more than the former, although probably both apply. I was just going to say let if we could shift scales from global supply chains down to some really practical stuff another uh, recent project i know this is about where you take it from wow that's potentially disheartening down to hey here's something i can do love it um we just uh released a report with a bunch of partners uh the report is Making Affordable Multifamily Housing More Energy Efficient, and it's a guide to healthier upgrade materials. Um, and this was a project that was uh, NRDC, us, uh, Vermont Energy Investment Corporation, Elevate Energy, which is a group out of Chicago, uh, International Living Futures, and uh, Three Cubed. Um, and this work really tried to say, let's look at the most common energy efficiency measures um, that are conducted um, to improve energy uh, Mm -hmm. performance in existing buildings specifically. Um, As part of a a kind of national campaign being run by NRDC called Energy Efficiency for All. So we looked at the materials that are most common in energy efficiency measures 
um, in buildings. And we were kind of looking through this lens. Uh, well, I first should first say the, the materials we were looking at were insulation, uh, pipe insulation, so wall insulation, pipe insulation, and uh, air sealing sealants. You know, the approach was to say, here are the common materials, um, speaking with the installers and program people across the country who are working in uh, multiple states and come up with a list and then do an evaluation. And HBN and our researchers here, Rebecca Stam, our, one of our great researchers, um, really dove into this and they took a really great approach. And this is what really excites me about this work. It was to not just look at the health um, impacts, which is, of course, what we do and is really important. But they also looked at performance factors, um, knowing that these were uh, performance-minded materials. You know, you can't just say, oh, here's an insulation, but, you know, this one's, you know, R1 and this one's R5 per inch and pretend that that's not a difference, that that doesn't have an impact on, on the work that people are doing. And so it was really looking at insulation, R values, um, cost, um, you know, whether or not this is something that is uh, a known uh, installation or something that would be a forward thinking, you know, like cutting edge installation. But they also looked at, you know, what is the vapor retarder class and what, you know, uh, air barrier materials, you know, ratings that these these things had. So that it wasn't just simply saying, use this material because it's the the green healthy material. It was also being, you know, super practical and someone could pick, can pick up this report and say, oh, I'm using um, polyisocyanurate when I could just as easily, you know, use blown in cellulose and blown in cellulose has a much healthier impact, you know, might be a little bit less of an R value, but, you know, could nonetheless, you know, start to think about how to integrate um, that into practice on the ground with installers. Oh, that is so important. I'm so, so I think that, that this is one of the things that, yeah, I really like about the way that, that we approach this report was to, to be um, forward thinking and not just uh, the health aspect, but integrating all the factors, cost, performance, durability, you know, knowledge of the trades to install it, as well as kind of availability that most of these materials are really available across the country. And so it's, it is an opportunity to, you know, provide information that people can action. And I think this is, you know, one of the really critical things that we believe in is that mm, solutions yeah. need to be actionable. Were there some clear um, winners? You can't just have a, a piece out. There are clear winners and it's not going to, I think these are the kinds of things that don't surprise people particularly. So, um, Loose fill fiberglass, um, dense pack fiberglass, uh, uh, cellulose are kind of those things that are up at the en higher end. Um, mineral wool. You know, fiberglass baths are at the upper mineral end. Wools. Mineral wool, awesome. you know, mineral wool fall really? falls down a little bit only because it, we're not really clear about what the binders are. And so this is, you know, why we go back to the whole need for transparency. There are formaldehyde-free right. mineral wools out there. But it's not as kind of across the board as it is with uh, fiberglass okay. insulation. That's a really good story, actually, of uh, manufacturer transformation and taking a chemical out, formaldehyde in, you know, in fiberglass insulation and in fiberglass bats is something that has been phased out. And it was, you know, a material that emerged in think in the late 30s, you know, in coming into prominent use yeah. as fiberglass, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, it was realized that formaldehyde was a potential carcinogen and was then confirmed yeah. as a carcinogen. And uh, there was a movement to get it out of fiberglass bats. And that's something that over the course of a couple of decades has really changed and has really transformed. And so now when you go and buy a fiberglass bat for the for the most part, I won't say 100% of the time, but for the most part, you don't really have to be worried about it having formaldehyde in the binder. It's just something that manufacturers have phased out. It was recognized, substitutes were found, and it's a real success, I think, mm -hmm. for that industry to have you know taken that on and addressed that yeah. holistically. So it's not just one manufacturer anymore, it's, it's multiple here, here, manufacturers. The power of 
consumer society is in the hands of the consumers in some sense. It is. And that's why, you know, we talk about the need for people to ask for and request and prefer materials that are transparent on the, you know, on the building construction side, that really does have an impact on that really does um, lead through because there's just too many chemicals and too many compounds out there to, you know, rely on a regulatory framework to address all of these issues. It's changing too quickly. Um, the Fed is is in, in a deregulatory position and stance right now. And, you know, we actually think that working th- to drive transparency on a voluntary basis and encourage that and support that is yeah. really the way to go. It's just, it's too complex to regulate it out of the system. We need to just agree that it's something that needs to happen and make it happen. So you said there's a need for consumers to do it, but it's interesting, right? So we recognize that we live in a consumer society and that the consumers have great power. And then you can think of that Spider-Man thing, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And you know, really <laughs> it's, it's our responsibility as consumers or as parents or as siblings or as societal members to, to make good decisions, which means be educated on our decisions and not just be kind of sheep led around by manufacturer rhetoric and, and it's not like the manufacturers are evil. I don't want to slam them. That's right. And some people come from a standpoint they think, oh, are you anti-manufacturer? Absolutely not. There are a lot of manufacturers who are really trying to get in front of this and are just as frustrated by not being able to get transparency from their supply chains. Now, there are some mm. manufacturers, obviously, that still haven't picked up on the transparency movement. Um, but, you know, on the whole, more and more are leading. And if you want to see who the leaders are, look at the health product declaration. And there's a public repository of HPDs. And if your manufacturer is not um, included in there, ask them to participate and to disclose on that yeah, format. Absolutely. So we have a lot of great manufacturer partners um, who are who are leading this effort. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they will be, become the dominant players, the ones that participate in this just real quick on the formaldehyde please go ahead Bill. Uh, can i oh i was just going to say i think one of the you know pieces of that is you know as a consumer whether you're a, an individual consumer or a designer architect contractor you know asking the question about do you need it you know do you need um stain repellent on a carpet do you need that chemical you know what is the function that it's it's serving um, kind of going back to the antimicrobial thing, do you need antimicrobials, uh, you know, in all this stuff? And if the answer is no, then looking for solutions that that don't have it. Um, so I think, you know, as we're thinking about education, um, that's the that's the first thing is, a, is that pretty simple question is, yeah. do I need this? Um, does this material need to have this quality or is it just fine? Yeah. And that's why I touched on the word. And does that... Talk. Does it actually work? Oftentimes when you see the stain repellents in particular or the antimicrobials, the false claims of what they are saying will do is not really happening. We were talking earlier about sanitized language and formaldehyde. One of the reasons it got, there was a call to get it out is because I think people relate to the word carcinogen more viscerally than the word toxic. And that's why I, I wanted to bring that up earlier. So the benefit of formaldehyde in terms of phasing it out of products was that people said, oh, it's a carcinogen. I don't want that. Okay, believe it or not, you guys, we have uh, come toward the end of the show. What, we, uh, what we've covered is a lot of really good stuff. I feel like this idea of the silent epidemic of the, the chemical overlay that we're all soaking in is something that we almost can't talk enough about. And uh, I really thank you guys very much for being here. I also want to give you the opportunity to make some final comments. So maybe Billy, we'll start with you. Yeah, great. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to share the work that we're doing. It's really great. Um, the I just wanted to uh, let people know that if you go to the Home Free website, um, you will find some um, guidance there. Um, in particular, we focused on nine uh product categories, primarily focused on indoor finishes. Um, so really that those spaces that people come in contact with physically uh, most often. 
And there you'll find information organized in a, what we refer to as a product hazard spectrum. And it's essentially kind of a simplified red to green light stop chart and stoplight chart. And you will see greener, you know, healthier options at the top of those charts. And then as you move through, um, you'll see things that are uh, perhaps less healthy all the way down to things that you really should avoid that are down in the red. And embedded in there is a lot of information about the specifics about why a material is more or less uh, healthy than, than another. And so I would just encourage folks to check it out. It's things like flooring, paint, um, cabinetry, uh, countertops, stuff that you know people touch every day and come in contact with every day. So I would just uh, really encourage folks to, to check it out. There's a link through the HBN website, and you can also just Google Home Free Beautiful. and you'll find it. Okay, Gina, how about you? Any final thoughts, final comments? My final thought is join us. As Billy said, we have a lot of resources. Uh, we have a lot of uh, energy and ideas and expertise. And if you want us to be part of your team, uh, contact us. If you want to look at our research, it's called Publicly Available. Um, be, a, be a part of this movement. You can be a part of the solution, and we would love to have you have a partner. So come on board. Give us a call. Check us out and let's do this. And well said. Let's really do this. I mean, think about it. The work you guys well know that what an important, oh, dare I say, sacred mission in some sense, right? A thriving planet, you know, healthy, thriving human beings on the planet. Like, what else is there? What else is like more critical? And the built world and indoor chemistry is so intimately related to that. I don't think uh, we can't talk about it too much. Absolutely. So thank you again. Um, well said. Every there, every way through this. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity. We look forward to more and more people joining in. Okay. Well, thank you guys both again. And thank you all for listening. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Is very, very big on one end, considerably larger in the middle. <laughs>